Hi, everyone, and welcome to Food Disruptors, an IFT podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives from some of the brightest minds in the science of food. Each episode, our guests discuss the ever-changing intersection of entrepreneurship, innovation, and science and their role in advancing the global food system. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden, and today's podcast features Kelly Hensel, IFT's Senior Digital Editor, and John Ruff, IFT's Chief Science and Technology Officer. We'll be discussing a few of the major trends that both Food Technology Magazine's editorial team, as well as IFT's Science, Policy, and Innovation team expect to play a major role in 2021. Thanks both to you for joining me today. Thank you. So let's jump into the predictions. Kelly, you're predicting that ghost kitchens, um, which are not as spooky as they sound, they've actually emerged as a result of the pandemic. You were predicting that they're here to stay. Can you first tell us a little bit about what they are and why you think they're going to be around for a while? Yeah, um, you know, ghost kitchens are a phenomenon that actually started before the pandemic and just kind of accelerated like many other trends in the industry due to the pandemic. So basically, there are these buildings, you could, they're pretty much everywhere in all the big cities now, but they're housed industrial kitchens and they're owned by a company. For example, one of the big companies is called Cloud Kitchens, which was started by the uh, former Uber executive. Yeah. And um, so these, these kitchens have, you pay rent basically, and you get a professional cooking space and you get to cook your meals and you know, either deliver or pick up uh, is usually the way that they're they're given to the consumers. So, um, you know, they've they've become really popular, obviously, because of the pandemic, and many restaurants were forced to close their doors, sometimes permanently, and this gave them a way to continue their brand uh, presence without uh, the high cost that comes with a brick and mortar. Also, as many people know food service operations have very narrow profit margins. There's a lot of risk involved and the capital expenditure to get up and running is huge. So ghost kitchens give an opportunity to narrow, you know, to, to widen that profit margin gap and to spin up relatively quickly with only maybe a thousand, couple thousand dollars. Well, so, I mean, it really seems like it allows them to kind of keep their delivery game going. Exactly. And, you know, as we all know, I've, at least personally, I've used a lot of delivery the last nine <laughs> months or so. So it's definitely become very vital for, for delivery service to be a part of a food service operation. Yeah, I think my new best friends are, are Postmates that come deliver all my food. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, thinking through other things that have been popular, at least for me during the pandemic, uh, I'll say it's sugar, uh, lots of sweets consumed in my house. <laughs> Um, But it's also something that we've discussed on our podcast um, in relation to the dietary guidelines. And we know that there's a need for, you know, many of us, myself included, to decrease our consumption of added sugar. John, could you talk to us about your expectations for sugar reduction in 2021? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, the uh, Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee has uh, proposed that the recommendation five years ago to maximum to have a maximum 10% of added sugar should be reduced to 6%. Uh, and at the moment, we're at 13%. So, you know, we've got to cut in half if we're to meet those guidelines and if they are implemented by the, uh, um, by the 2025 uh, uh, panel. Um, we have to cut those in half 
Uh, and, you know, it's, sugar reduction is hardly new. In fact, I was thinking one of the first things I did in my career 45 years ago was a, a program to reduce sugar, I'd, albeit it was actually as a quality improvement. But, uh, um, but you know, sugar reduction has been going on a long time. There have been a lot of option, options. Um, but we're going to really have to start to look at some of the newer technical options that are available. Um, there's been a lot of discussion um, recently about rare sugars, uh, as they're called, like allulose, which have uh, interesting properties. There are a lot of tools available, but there are also a lot of barriers. Um, you know, there are barriers because of concerns um, that continue to be expressed about artificial sweetness. Um, there are concerns about many of the uh, natural um, intense sweeteners, which still, in some cases, don't deliver a close enough to sugar, clean enough taste. Um, but as well as the scientific progress, I, I think it's going to need a, a more collaborative effort between all the parties. It, it, you know, it's the ingredient manufacturers who've done a lot of great work. It's the food processors who are, who are trying to implement those in their products in the smartest way. Um, but it's also the government uh, uh, bodies and, and consumer groups uh, really helping to sort of uh, advise people in the smart way how to use these tools. I don't think it's just a question of let's figure out what the next generation of sugar substitutes are. It is much more complicated than that. So, yeah, this is going to be a, a year where I think we're going to see a lot of activity. How much progress do you think can be made in a year? If it's something that's been going on for, you know, as long as you can remember in your career, there are significant barriers like you're mentioning. Maybe what is the push that we need to make some significant progress a little bit more quickly? Well, at the end of the day, um, consumers have to choose <laughs> to some degree, right. uh, both to consume less discretionary sugar, and as you point out, this has not been a good year for them. <laughs> um, so in some ways, we probably will see some reduction this year uh, as, as, uh, as we get into a post-COVID world and people perhaps don't feel the need to, to eat um, as many cookies or candies or, or so forth. <laughs> but it's also to choose options which are lower, lower in sugar. Uh, it's to get, um, uh, you know, it's figuring out how to be clearer with our labeling um, so that people can make the cho right choices. Mm. Uh, and as I said, I, I think everybody's got to sort of um, uh, um, figure out what they can do um, from the ingredients suppliers all the way through to, to the end consumers, what they can do to make a difference. It is not going to happen overnight. No, no uh, program like this of reducing sugar, uh, just like salt, which is you know in a similar program where we still today consume way too much and right. and um, you know. But there are reductions that are going on. It it is. I hate to you know be be somewhat um, you know or not optimistic <laughs> at, at this time. But it is going to take us years. But I do expect to see both technical advances as well as new initiatives that will lead the way let's see see the light at the end of the tunnel where we can really start to get uh, uh, to much lower levels i think that's right i mean especially when you have guidelines such as this if, if this is accepted from the committee uh, the committee's recommendations are accepted on this point you know it's, it adds another pressure point i guess on all sides to, to make some progress absolutely so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about mushrooms. So as I understand, the food tech editorial staff is predicting that mushrooms uh, will grow in popularity in 2021. 
Kelly, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So Margie um, is our our associate editor on food tech, and she has a great prediction for this coming year. Um, she's calling it Shroom's Rule, <laughs> which I love. Um, and and I'm actually I I just kind of got into this trend myself when I ordered something called mushroom jerky. <laughs> through uh, Thrive Eats, I guess. Skeptical, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just tried it actually right before this podcast, and I'm on the fence about it. Um, I'm I'm a mushroom lover, but it's it's a little odd. So, <laughs> but there there's mushrooms popping up everywhere, and um, it's it's you know it's an interesting phenomenon. Actually, interesting, kind of related to John's sugar reduction prediction. there's a company called Mycotechnology that's working with mushroom extracts to kind of be used in formulations to block the bitter notes and hopefully therefore reduce the sugar and salt. I'm not really sure how that works. I'm not a food scientist, but that sounded kind of interesting. There's also a lot of other products out there from crispy mushrooms um, to, to snack on. And then I recently saw a company called At Last Food Company has basically a bacon, a meatless bacon that they've made from mushroom mycelium, which is, I guess, the the, the structure and the root of the mushroom, which a lot of meatless or plant-based meat companies are using t- for that texture, which I thought was really interesting. So yeah, mushrooms are going to be everywhere. <laughs> Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, um, I, yeah, I, I, I can't help but just sort of jump in on top of uh, Kelly's point about shrooms um because uh you know one of the things that that we talked about in the science policy group is is what i call the meat analogs going mainstream um Mm. you know in the same way that one of my earliest projects was sugar reduction i think the next one was actually meat analogs 50 years ago i was working on meat analogs which is you know a lot of people don't realize that you know this is not new it's been going on a long time but you know back then there were sort of lower cost partial replacements for meat and it was usually in the food away from home market um but you know as as the develop as the as the off off as the offerings have got better and more diverse it is really starting to take off and we've seen that in the last year but i think it's going to continue to take off you know even more and and this will be the year where as we say it becomes mainstream but what's most interesting to me is it's no longer being driven by the cost reasons that I was involved in 50 years ago, or the health reasons that came in somewhat later, or the the cultural reasons, uh, the vegan aspects. Um, a lot of the uh, the plant-based proteins now are being driven by environmental benefits. And that's what I think is going to make them come mainstream, because all of the others, you know, didn't quite make it to mainstream. The environmental one, and frankly, the continue and environmental issues across the board, are going to become more mainstream over this next year uh, and several years, and that's going to drive this. And and you know it will not just be the um, uh, the plant based proteins, which of course is what we've been talking about a lot over the last year. It will be microproteins, which of course mushrooms is one of those. And I personally, you know, tend not to go and buy a a substitute for um, for beef for for a burger. I'll use a portobello mushroom, or my wife does, and we or we both do. Um, so I'm I'm a big fan like you are, Kelly, in terms of using those. Um, so there'd be a lot of a lot of activity going on here, as I say, going from plant proteins to microproteins to cell-based meats and across the board. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Like you said, John, kind of really hopefully taking off and, and here for good because of, you know, those environmental concerns. Hopefully. I just bought, I also, I was talking about my mushroom jerky. I just bought a bar of chocolate, uh, primordial chocolate, which has uh, mushrooms in it. So they're supposed to have the lion's mane, reishi, shaga, and I can't even say the last type of mushroom, but I haven't tried it yet. So we'll have to see. But there's a lot of health benefits around mushrooms too. And the adaptogenic, which I don't know a whole lot about, pr- properties of mushrooms are pretty popular as well. Well, and what I find so interesting about this mushroom talk as well is the fact that they're getting a lot of use out of the mushroom. So Kelly, you talked about the mycelium being used for some products and an extract being used for another product or like an ingredient. So it's sort of like a an almost jack of all trades, like they're really getting as much as they can and they being, you know, food scientists out of these mushrooms um, to maximize value. And they're quite easy to grow depending on the mushroom, I believe. So it's kind of a, like John touched on, a sustainable uh, way to, you know, sort of manufacture new ingredients and, and meet alternatives. Absolutely. You know, another product that they um, just came out with that I thought was fascinating was for uh, it's the company Four Sigmatic is has come out with a mushroom matcha latte mix. They also have a chai latte mix, and um, I don't know. I, I you know I'm on the fence about what those are actually tasting like, but I can see the appeal uh, for mushroom lovers. So <laughs> very interesting and. You know, obviously, there's a lot more we could discuss. uh, But to wrap it up, John, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the role of technology and food safety, and how those will be a major theme in 2021. Oh yeah, I you know we, we've been talking about a couple of things that are, are, have been enhanced and by by the pandemic. Probably nothing more than the concern about safety. People are concerned about their own safety. They've been concerned about the safety of food, um, and whether it be you know can you uh, catch COVID from from food sources, which all the data would suggest no. But they're also concerned and, and I think have become much more rec- recognizing of the need to for good hygiene practices, washing their hands. And, you know, that's great because that that will hopefully dramatically reduce not just the uh, likelihood of getting COVID-19 or, or flu, but also of, of, of illnesses from food that, that are often caused in the home. Um, but I think what it's going to do also is, is really put a, a, a greater emphasis um, on, on concerning the food supply about food safety. Um, it's going to uh, also, uh, the COVID-19 has also exposed weaknesses in the supply chain. You know, we all know something we either couldn't buy for a period of time or the price shot up and, and there's work going on that. But I think what that's going to do is, is really enhance things like traceability, um, for instance. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see Again, this is probably going to be a year where we're going to see a dramatic increase in the adoption of various digital technologies like blockchain, like blockchain for traceability. Um, you know, the the FDA last summer launched its new era of food safety uh, blueprint uh, at uh, at our Shift Twenty Two IFT show, and that outlined the approach for using technology for food safety, including traceability. Um, so we're going to, we, you know, we're Though these changes are certainly going to reduce the outbreaks of food foodborne illness, 
uh, but also going to create a, a more secure and less wasteful food supply. Um, so I think we're going to see initiatives like that. Uh, you know, as I'm probably stepping past the specific food safety, but it does relate. I also think one of the things we see, we're already seeing is some of the larger companies that I've talked to recently are starting to look at using remote techniques. They're having to because of COVID, but these are techniques they're probably going to continue to use. So, for instance, companies are increasing the use of sensors and even sort of artificial intelligence within the food industry. Food industry has been pretty slow to adopt. AI because of the investment versus other industries. But with these travel restrictions and the desire to reduce human interactions in laboratories, factories, as well as offices, we're going to see uh, more use of these for improved process control. So there's a lot of things that COVID silver lining, I think, can do for us in in terms of applying technologies that that aren't new, but haven't been perhaps utilized and adapted as, as much in the food industry. And to make a, a safer and and, uh, and less wasteful uh, uh, food supply. Well, I think that is a great place for us to wrap up our discussion. John and Kelly's teams both have plenty of more predictions. So if you'd like to learn more, be sure to check out IFT's website, ift.org. If you're enjoying Food Disruptors, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us at IFT on Twitter and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Food Disruptors. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden. Have a great day, everyone.